Hello, Coaching Bonas. I'm really excited to bring you episode 26 of season 5 of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. I was really excited this interview to bring back Alini Mello on the podcast. I spoke with her as part of the interview for... Somewhere We Are Human, the anthology of undocumented writers, poets, and was really excited to bring her back this time to talk about her new book of poetry, More Salt Than Diamond. We discussed why her love poems are, quote, reluctant, what it means to be more salt than diamond, and what country means for a Brazilian immigrant living in the U.S., the best way to support the podcast is to become a Patreon for 3 5 or $10 a month. You can help support the podcast and allow it to gain more resources and grow. If you become a 5 to $10 patron a month, then you will get early access to episodes like these and exclusive access to the lit reviews which are book club style chats that I have with amazing women of color. I am currently reading Homegoing and I'll be discussing that with Dr. Alexandria Petch. So I'm super excited about that and completely 100% free way to help the podcast is to leave an Apple rating and review. Thank you to everybody that has given a rating and review in the past, including the person who gave a rating this past week because Apple podcast is featuring Radio Cachimbona in their TBH collection for Latina Heritage Month. So you all can go and see under Latina Diaspora where Radio Cachimbona is included. And please, please, please keep it up. You know, the more ratings and reviews the show gets, the more visibility it gains and the wider audience can hear these important conversations about the borderlands, about immigration and about abolition. You can follow at Radio Cachimona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And you can also follow the legal journalism, my legal commentary that I am writing for Balls and Strikes on Twitter at EvaPorjaAZ. I hope that you enjoy this interview. So thank you, Alini Mello, for coming back on the podcast today to talk about your book of poetry, More Salt Than Diamond. Um, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. I really loved your book of poetry. You started with a prologue that tells the story of you as a child standing in a parking lot of your apartment building, feeling like you could fly, feeling the wind in the hair of your arms and imagining that. What does that story show about your story and your poetry? I think that, you know, like usually poetry books don't really start with prologues. And I think I included it because it was like a little bit of scene setting. Mm -hmm. I think in it, like it shows that as a child, I was very imaginative and I felt very powerful. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I like you you or you were like willing yourself to fly. Yeah, I was like I can control this wind. <laughs> it's, it's within my control, you know. Right. Yeah. I think that that was like maybe a reflection of where I'm coming from, like of being that kind of child, but then growing up undocumented and seeing so much of those parts of me getting shut down and and having to learn how to survive within these like undocumented parameters and i think that you know it's that prologue starts with me controlling the wind and then it ends with i mean i think a lot of disappointment right so yeah it's sad but i think it like kind of sets (laughs) the mood for the rest of the of the book right in one of your poems you write that living in the U.S. has felt like 23 years unlived. Why is that? I think in that poem, I'm saying that I would switch it, right? Like, I would give it back. Yeah. Three years, which is 25 now. 
Yeah. But <laughs> I think that when I immigrated, and I'm not going to speak for everyone. Yeah. But for me, in my experience, I was seven. So it felt like I got into an agreement that I didn't know I was getting into. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. That reminds me of like the poem where you were like on a, you said that you wanted to say goodbye again to Brazil. Like you wanted to be on a plane and kind of know that that's the last time you're going to yeah, be in your country. Right. Like I didn't know that, you know, so yeah, because you were too young to understand. Right. Like I was just like, woo, plane ride, you know, like, yeah. So I think I, and there was a lot of trade-offs, you know, like I was told that speaking English was a good thing. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know that speaking English meant that maybe my Portuguese wouldn't be as good, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I didn't know yeah. that answering one would mean that maybe I would lose my proficiency in the other one. Or I didn't know that, that like, I, I, I was told that not having a, a Brazilian accent when I speak would be good, right? Mm-hmm. But then you, you go, now, you know, I go and I'm like, wait a minute, I lost that accent and, like, I can't get it back. And when I do try to, you know, like when I'm like, I'm going to talk like my mom, it just sounds like I'm mocking her. So Mm. I'm like, I can't do it. Like, I can't do this anymore. I lost it. Like people say lose your accent. I'm like, yeah, it's a loss, you know? Mm, So mm -hmm. I think that in that poem, in that moment, I was saying like, I would trade it all back. I would just be like, take it all back. Like take these, these 25 years, take the English you know, just because people are always like, oh, well, well, you learned English. You've had such a good life. You know, like they just mm-hmm. have all these things like, aren't you happy? And I'm like, I would trade it all back. I really would. And maybe I would make similar decisions, you know, like, but then they would be my decisions. Right. Maybe right. I would make similar trade-offs, but they would be things that I walked into knowing what I was doing. And that's yeah. just not something I was given as a child. For sure. I feel like this relates to a general theme that I saw in the book, which is of returning. Like in the poem you were just talking about, you're talking about kind of like rewinding time and going back to that place in time before you, before you left. And I think also that relates to the pain that comes from not being able to travel back and forth outside of state-imposed borders. Why is returning such a prevalent theme in the book? I think there are a lot of reasons. Definitely a surface one is that I feel like this country wants me out. And if I'm, you know, if I'm leaving, I'm not going to Paris, right? Like when people say like, go back to your country, they're like specifically talking about your country. Or Mexico, right? I'm like, I could always go to Mexico. I know that the governor of Georgia currently said he was going to fill up his pickup truck and take us all to Mexico. And I was like, oh my gosh, do you have recommendations? Like, where should I go? (laughs) Right? But like, there's just a very, there's like a a constant feeling of not being wanted here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I think with going with that is like this, this like imagining of being wanted in the country you're from mm, like mm-hmm, maybe mm-hmm. this country doesn't want me maybe my country does and then I think also like there is in the multiverse a version of me who never left Brazil right, right. Who is she, you know yeah um, who is she who is she what did she get to do like what yeah. what is she into and and there's a part of me that's like I wish I could know her, you know, and, and yeah. I, think I spent a lot of years comparing us mm. and, and wanting to be her. But I think now I'm in a better place with that. And I'm more just curious instead of angry or resentful, though I'm still very angry. I think that there's just this pull and I, and my mom is a citizen and she has applied for me. So I'm waiting for that. But like, she does say like, and I think I even wrote a poem about it. Like she's like, we make it up, you know, like we make it into this like amazing thing in our mind. And when we yeah. go, it's not that great. Like, but it's almost like I just want to see it for myself, you know? Like I just want to know. I, I want to know that. I don't want to just hear it from someone. Yeah, because otherwise you just have this romanticized version in your head that right. you keep returning to. Right, for sure. For sure, like the family that I 
that I have in Brazil, the experience of Brazil, like all of that is, is imagined. Mm -hmm. Like none of it is actual, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all I I can have, you know, it's not my fault. I noticed that all of your love poems were titled reluctant love poems. Why are they reluctant? I feel like I should be like, I'm single and I'm 33, currently living in Columbus, Ohio. (laughs) What are your likes and dislikes? (laughs) I'm like, maybe this is how I have Hallmark now on my TV. I'm like, this is is a Hallmark movie. Does that happen now? It's like updated. That's how people fall in love on Hallmark movies now. No, but I think they should. I don't, I don't think that podcasts <laughs> exist in Hallmark yet. You know, like it's it's like no. maybe five, ten years out. And oh, then, wow. <laughs> but I just have a really hard time with romantic love hmm. and the sort of recklessness that goes into it. Like, hmm. do you talk about like they, they say it's falling in love for a reason? Right. Right. Like it's not. And, and I just there's a saying in Brazil that's quem pensa no casa, which means like the person who thinks won't get married. <laughs> so, <laughs> like if you think about it too much, right. it won't happen, you know, like because you're, you're overthinking it, like mm-hmm. because you'll realize that it's it's kind of ridiculous, you know, yeah. that, like what you're going to commit the rest of your life to this person you just met two years ago. Like, mm-hmm. so I just. I have a hard time with commitment, <laughs> but not like that, right? Like, I feel like I can very easily commit to like my dog, you know, and I commit to like the bookcase I got, you know, like I want to okay. spend years, like I got a new water bottle and I'm like, I'm going to have this water bottle for years. You know, like I, I love, I love committing, but when it comes to a bookcase, yeah, to a bookcase. So I just, I have a hard time, but you know, there is that part of me that deals with romantic love in more of like a long game Mm. way. And I will say too, that like, I think one of the primary reasons that I'm like this with romantic love is because I grew up in an extremely religious household and we were all up in like evangelicalism and no dating allowed. And, you know, like, so I grew up kind of shutting that part of myself down. Mm. And then I guess mm. now that I'm older, I'm like looking at it, you know, <laughs> like, like, it's like, I never, I never. Like it's hard up. to think about because you repressed it for so long. Well, and, and it's yes. And I think also like, because I never went through it. Now I look at it, you know, like, it's not like something that you I have. feel detached from it. Yes. I, I, I feel that distance mm. that I'm able to look at it so critically while other people are like, but it's love, you know? And I'm like, mm. okay, well, what does that mean? You know, like yeah. I have a friend saying, telling me how their sibling like fell in love at first sight. And I'm like, what does that mean? And they're like, I don't know. But they said that, you know, like the moment they saw, they just, they just knew. And I'm like, what is like you're just saying cliches at this point you know like, yeah I'm like what do you mean did she feel known did she feel comfortable did she feel nervous like I'm like there are here's a feelings wheel you know like let's describe this and I feel like that's part of the problem like you know like some people are like no there's no describing it so I don't know I feel like all my love poems very reluctant they usually (laughs) usually wrote them because i was crushing on someone so Mm. it's also like do i want to write some poem for some crush you know and then i move on and now i have a poem about them like forever it makes me think of like ariana grande's album for pete davidson like oh yeah like that's out there you know so i don't know i just i must she also puts out other stuff like dissing her exes Yes. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Ariana Grande is, you know, on a different level. She's more <laughs> prolific. Pro- prolific. So, like, I'm over here, like, great. Like, literally, guys I've crushed on can, like, point to a poem I've written and be like, I am 5% of her published work. 
Really? Like even the poem where you, it was like a reluctant love poem, but then you were talking about like wondering what it feels like to be floating in space. Like how would somebody, is that like a conversation you had with somebody? <laughs> That's how they would know. <laughs> I think it's the longing, right? It's the hiding. I don't think this guy knows that it was about him. <laughs> okay. I think he could maybe do the math and be like, she liked me during this time. And this is when she wrote this poem. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think that the reason that they're really reluctant and that I named them that is because there's a lot of hiding in them. Like mm. I'm not actually saying the thing. Right. And I think that poetry allows you to do that. Mm-hmm. But I also think that I have to call it out. Like I have to say, by the way, I'm hiding in here. Mm. So I think that was like my attempt at doing that by titling Reluctant because I'm not actually like fully lovey-dovey accepting of love in those poems. A few of your poems touch on being in Georgia and you mentioned the governor. Can you speak to how you were racialized there and how that was different or how it compares to having grown up in Brazil for seven years? Right. <laughs> yes, so, you having those formative years. I was in Brazil so I was seven. Mm-hmm. And I was in Massachusetts so I was 11. And then in Georgia until literally last year. So, okay. So most of the time in Georgia. Georgia is interesting, right? Because there are some parts of it that I love. I feel very defensive of the South when I'm outside of it. Like mm-hmm. right now, living in Ohio for my MFA. If anyone like mentions said something bad about the South, I'm like, what? <laughs> Have you been? Like, I'm like, what, what, are, what were you saying? Like, I feel automatically included and like, I feel like I. What I'm they're like, attacking. Okay. Yeah. Right. I'm like, what are you saying about my region but also like when i'm in there i'm like oh my gosh fuck the south right like yeah it is fucking worse so it's mixed feelings i it's very hot and i'm a sweater so i am constantly sweating <laughs> it's also very humid yeah and it's just a lot of immigrants so yeah what, like, maybe people don't know that but. yeah i think maybe people don't know that like you know in every state the second most spoken language is Spanish. Mm-hmm. And in Georgia, the third is Korean. Mm-hmm. People are just mixed up, like like leftists and rightists. And, you know, like my, my mom's neighborhood, when it was election time, like people were putting their huge signs and competing, you know, in a way that I think is kind of special, right? Like, yeah. You can feel maybe some, some tension and, and a little bit scary, but like, at the same time, like I'm in Columbus right now, and I only think that there are conservative people in the city when the games are on, which is also kind of nice <laughs> to have that bubble, right? But I I think it's an unrealistic bubble to live in. So I don't know if you remember when people started talking about sanctuary cities. Yeah, yeah. And it's basically literally a city that when they arrest you won't automatically call ice yeah right? like that's literally it right people were imagining who knows what they were imagining. like i think people are like you go to these sanctuary cities they give immigrants free computers you know like, and it's like what no free, free macbooks people, right like literally they won't call ice on you yeah and they won't share information with ice either right if yeah. if if you're arrested for like traffic violation mm-hmm. and we had a city in georgia that was like that but it was like a lot of cities are like that right yeah yeah so but then people started calling it out like oh this city is a sanctuary city mm-hmm. and then i remember the is he the mayor there was this guy who was like in local politics because local, local politics really matters with him for immigrants mm-hmm. and he was like i'm gonna shut down this sanctuary city and then he ran against brian kemp in the primary and in my mind, his name is Casey Cagle. In my mind, I'm like, Casey Cagle is the worst. Mm-hmm. But then when I saw Brian Kemp, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> it can be worse. Kemp is the worst. Yeah. And then I was like, am I cheering for Casey Cagle to win the primary? Right? And then Brian Kemp won. And I'm like, I felt very 
confused as to like how I feel like people started being aware of undocumented immigrants more. Mm-hmm. And I think it hurt us. I think it hurt us in ways that we, I think maybe we're expecting, right? Like you, when you're an undocumented person, like you hide for a reason, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Georgia started, it's they're w- one of the few states in the U.S. still that doesn't allow undocumented people to attend certain universities. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to pay out of state tuition. All of this happened when I graduated high school. So in 2007, so like it felt like a door closing in my face, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then with DACA, like that does not change. You still have to pay out of state tuition. I had to go to college and pay out of state tuition. Like I had to get even though you're going to school in Georgia. Yeah, when I was in Georgia. Because like you don't qualify for student loans, mm-hmm. you don't qualify for any grants, like any sort of help. Mm-hmm. So it was either like pay it by credit card or get. I was able to get private scholarships, and I also cleaned house with my mom, and then mm-hmm. my mom helped. like. So it just it's a really hard state to live in, and I think like yeah, when I, as an immigrant for sure. Yeah, for sure. Like, and when I worked with undocumented immigrants there at Freedom University, this like organization that that like helps undocumented immigrants to like go to university, I see that they're encouraged to leave the state, and I agree with that. Mm. Like, yeah, leave this fucking state. Like, get a break. You know, like take even if you come back later and you fight or something, but like leave and take a break. Take like a five year break. Right. Um, because it really feels like it feels oppressive sometimes. Like yeah. Like the yeah. humidity sometimes the, <laughs> the humidity in the air feels like a, mm, like suffocating. You know, like mm-hmm. like I'm like, oh, this is happening because I'm undocumented. Like it would not be this <laughs> So it just it's it's a hard state. But I also think that there's like a lot of good happening and a lot of good work. But sometimes we're not meant to stay where it's really hard, at least not for for always. And I am going to go back, right? Like the plan. That was, that was my next question is <laughs> if you are planning on going back. The plan is to go back okay. after I finish my MFA. Because you so, said in your poem, Oh, Georgia, I am here for your wholeness. Yeah, I. that's where my family is, right? My family, I yeah. literally my mom and my sister and my stepdad. Mm-hmm. The rest of my family is all in Brazil. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, isn't life about being around people you love? And yeah. Like, I want to see my mom be an old lady, you know, like mm-hmm. I want to have kids and like have them be around their, your, their family members. Like I just like, I'm, I'm going to go back. But I also think that like, after my mom and stepdad die, I'm leaving. Mm. You know, like, I know that sounds really morbid, but I'm like, <laughs> you know, they're going to die maybe in 30 years. Yeah. And then I'm out. Like I'm going to California, I'm going to New York. Like I'm going somewhere mm. that's easier, so I can rest. Yeah. I guess the hard thing is like those places are hard to live in because they're so expensive. But I'm not. But I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna cramp your dream. Okay? <laughs> yeah, <I'm laughs> I'm just from the Bay Area, so I'm just like. Mm. And then you know maybe I'll end up up in a place that I don't know about right now. Yeah. But in an easier place. For sure. Also, How- is going to be like underwater and <gasps> no else. They do say that, yeah. <laughs> Parts of it, at least. <laughs> How did you find the courage to write about your eating disorder? I think it was just through therapy. Mm-hmm. The first poem I ever wrote about my eating disorder was the one that's like jealous of teen girls, the waiting room, like. I remember like literally leaving my therapist like so at one point I had my regular therapist and I had like an eating disorder Mm -hmm. dietitian and I remember which was basically another therapist yeah yeah and like seeing these teenage girls with their moms in the waiting room and I was like damn it like when I was 16, I was going on chats about like Anna's and Mia's and looking at how to be bulimic, you know, like, 
And I'm over here in my 30s trying to figure this out. Like, I felt so envious. And, like, even mm. for sure having their moms there, like, mm-hmm. like, that was not a part of my experience, right? Like, my relationship with my mom right now is, like, healed. Mm-hmm. And it's much better. And, like, she's so good at, like, making sure that there's always whole milk in her fridge. You know, like, all of the things that I was not allowed to have before. But I wish I had that that mumbling when I was a teenager. You know, yeah. like, where was she? So I think that I was able to write those poems because I was suddenly accessing... Because I, I think, like... It's important to say that like an eating disorder is not a mental, it's not about food, right? Like Mm-mm. it's not, oh, I can't stop eating or, oh, I can't start eating. Like mm-hmm. it's about something else. And the eating disorder is there as a coping mechanism. So you're going through shit. The way that you cope is some people do it with alcohol. Some people do it with overexercising. Some people do it with being uber religious you know yeah some people do it i chose uber religious and eating disorder you know and i say chose like not you know i didn't choose it but it was Mm -hmm. just like what was available to me i think that going to therapy and actually accessing the emotions behind the eating disorder and what was going on that made me feel like i needed it Mm -hmm. that made it so I could start talking about it. And and the way that I wrote this first book was really about survival. Like I was just trying to survive. And my eating disorder was one of those things that I had to face in order to survive. Right. So it sounds like therapy was kind of the catalyst for your journey to body acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm still on the journey. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... I feel like because we live in such a fat phobic society, like body acceptance and body positivity is just a lifelong journey, you know, until we dismantle these structures. It's really disappointing. It is. But yeah, it is like, I don't have a full length mirror in my house. Like, cause I'm like, I don't want one. Like it is, Mm. it's just a doorway to some fucked up moments, you know? Mm. So like, but, like, I was like, okay, but you will have another mirror. Like, not just your bathroom mirror. Like, all of last year, I only had my bathroom mirror. But then this year, I'm like, okay, you have your bathroom mirror and a mirror that goes, like, you know, halfway, like, to your torso. I'm like, okay, let's slowly <laughs> get to a full-length mirror. But, like, something that I have to be aware of, something that I have to work on. And it's really exhausting, right? Because you would think it's like... Oh, you're an undocumented immigrant. That's the, the thing mm-hmm. that you have to deal with. And it's like, no, there are other things too. <laughs> I have multiple things. Yeah, it's not just one. In excuse absences, you go into why. Or you tell a story about how one Saturday you couldn't march at the protest because. You had to read news articles with your grandmother and explain that, quote, she is not white and I am not safe. How has living in the U.S. differed from what you imagined or what your family told you about it? So to correct you for clarity, mamai means mom. So like, oh, ball <laughs> means or anytime that I have ball in it, that's grandmother. Okay. Thank you for that. Grandmother poems. (laughs) It's kind of hard to say. Like, my family really has no grasp on what it's like to live here. Like, it's really strange. Even the ones who have lived here. Mm -hmm. So, like, I feel like half half of my mom's family, like, never left Brazil. And then the other half, like, all left Brazil. Mm -hmm. And there's, like, one uncle that I think, like, he gets it. But... The other ones, like, they just imagine that life here is so easy. Mm-hmm. And they're just like, oh, you know, I don't know. And, and you know, I think it is, right? Like, that's I mean, true. Like, I'm diabetic and yeah. my uncles are 
most I have an aunt like I have like three uncles who are diabetic and I'm treating my diabetes because I have I'm able to pay for my medication right and they don't like yeah. they're not treating their diabetes mm-hmm. and they're not able to pay for their medication so like if I'm gonna like see it in a certain way yeah life here is easier yeah it's easier for people to find a job and it's like fat phobia there is even worse than here you know so but most undocumented people don't have access to like state health insurance programs right i have daca yeah so like if you don't have health insurance in this country it's really hard oh i think you know? i didn't have health insurance till daca so, okay so i was like 24 and i mean it was just i don't know what i had back then like it was like this thing, like as soon as you go to the hospital, as soon as you go to a doctor, they tell you what's wrong with you. It's better to not know. Like before I went to the doctor, I didn't have anything wrong with me. But right. now, um, so yeah, I mean, so yeah, I have DACA. And right now, like that's, you know, not even a solid thing. And, and a lot of younger people who are finally the age to apply to DACA can't, right? So when I'm working with undocumented students in Georgia, like they all can't apply to DACA, which is crazy. yeah, yeah. Um, that like it's just this weird chunk of like late twenties and thirties people with DACA, which it used to be seen as like this like the younger crowd. Well, you know what? Right. That's still young. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> sure, but you know what I mean. But I feel like people were painted as like teenagers or something. Like they right. were like college ready. <laughs> right like, i think how obama was marketing it yeah and and like those those people can't right but like i think my family just doesn't even understand the immigration part of things and i think that's like a big difference between yeah my family and like some other like some of my friends families like i think especially my mexican friends their family like are aware of what immigration is they're aware of horrors they're aware of the relationship with the U.S., but like my Brazilian family, they're very rural, mm-hmm. pretty conservative. Like, don't really have an idea of like I'm undocumented. Like, I went, I went with um, advanced parole in 2015. They were like, Paulini, finally. <laughs> and I'm like, hello. Like, I just, I didn't like choose to not come all this time. Like, I don't. So, like, I had to, like, multiple times, like, explain <laughs> to different cousins, you know? Like, yeah. And I'm like, did you not, what, did you just think I didn't feel like it? Like, I don't understand. So, there is, like, just a lot of, and, like, you know, I've explained it several times, but I think it just, like, doesn't sink in. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, you should come visit me. And they're like, you should come visit me. And I'm like, no, <laughs> you visit. Like, I don't know. I didn't really know what the U.S. was before I came here. Didn't know we were immigrating. (laughs) Didn't know what that meant. And now I think a lot of the ideas that we have about all countries is pretty imagined and pretty in our heads. Um, Yeah. So I'm not saying it's just my family. Like, I think a lot of Americans have, like, this dream of what America is. Yeah. It's not true. Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but it was a roundabout way. No, it does. It does. And the U.S. does totally have a propaganda machine. And my parents immigrated here from El Salvador, and they talk about the U.S. in idealized terms. And, like, you know, just the greatest country on earth, a land of milk and honey and prosperity. Um, So I totally get where you're coming from, where your family in Brazil just thinks that that's what you experience, that that's what your life is. In you, when you were saying that countries are kind of more imagined in our heads than actually real, it reminded me of the poem, The Country Inside Me, where you write, the country inside me is better than the one I left, the one I'm in. People there know how to greet me in English, no pause before my name. Can you say more about what the meaning of country is? For you in that poem. Yeah. Sometimes I get into these like my therapist calls it the fuckets. Or it's just like, fuck it. What is a country? You know, like 
just this sort of existential annoyance. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where that came from of like, I don't know what Brazil is. You've like recreated that in your mind. Right. Like Brazil is like what I think Brazil is, is something completely different, right. Than what it actually is, than what my mom thinks it is and what my cousins think it is. And then like this country, I remember seeing so many white people being like shocked when they realized that they didn't know anything about it. They were like, Oh my gosh, I just realized us history and i'm like where have you been you know like (laughs) and they were just having like these epiphanies of like oh my gosh i didn't know and it's like okay so even if you're from here you've been imagining shit like yeah yeah so i'm like okay then i get to imagine countries too like if Mm. we're just making shit up and like even when you consider how we draw borders right like how we say this is this, but it's not that. And it's yeah. like, who says? And, and what wasn't that imagined? And aren't we just sort of playing along? Like, we're just all agreeing with that. You know, like there's, okay. Like, we're, it's like, we're all agreeing on money, right? Like we're all agreeing. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. This is this much, but like, you know, I can't lead a revolution to make everyone be like, let's stop agreeing. But I can like <laughs> decide mm-hmm. what I do on the page and in myself. Yeah. yeah. So I think that like, if I have any opportunity to create new things when I'm writing poetry, then that's what I'm going to try to do. Mm. I love that. And I didn't know, I didn't know you write that, uh, quote, fathers lack stains like oil. What did you mean by that? Yeah, well, I feel like in a very literal sense, I'm never able to get oil stains off anything. Yeah. But I have a very, <laughs> like, I think throughout the book, you can see that my relationship with my father is not good mm-hmm. um, and, like, non-existent. Mm-hmm. After 10 years, so it was his idea to immigrate. So I think that's a huge part of, of that. Um, and then after 10 years of living here, he left. Mm. Like he just like, it was a Tuesday before Thanksgiving. We come home. There's the voicemail and he's like, I'm in Miami. What? I'm about to get on the plane to Brazil and I've left. So he was, he was depressed. He had gotten arrested. Oh, okay. He had a social security number, but they didn't believe him. So then they arrested him and then he like by the time he, he showed like no I actually do have a social security number he they still they took away his driver's license mm-hmm. and then he was like no but I have one and they were like we're gonna keep this go back to where you came from and like you know what are you gonna do like the cops <laughs> wait like, was this in this was in Georgia in Georgia yeah this this is like this is a pattern in Georgia because there was a Supreme Court case last term, Patel v. Garland, and it was a guy, he came here on a work visa, and he was applying to be a legal permanent resident, and he had applied for a driver's license, which, like, Georgia state law does allow you to get a driver's license if you have a valid work permit, so he didn't do anything, like, he didn't yeah. violate the law, and still, like, the unit of georgia police that is there's a unit that's devoted to like driver license fraud which it seems like they focus on immigrants and so dhs finds out has like anything that's ever happened to you like any interaction you've had with criminal law enforcement dhs like knows that and so even something like that where like no charges were brought it was really just kind of like they were harassing you they like what happened is they asked him a bunch of questions and then let him go. That was used as a basis for denying him the green card because they said that he had lied about being a U.S. citizen because on the driver's license application, he had accidentally said, yes, I'm a U.S. citizen. But he was like, it was the whole, his thing from the whole time was that it was truly a mistake. I know I'm not a U.S. citizen. I'm in proceedings. Like I'm aware of this. It was truly a mistake, and the Supreme Court ruled that um, that the decision should stand. Yeah, it's I. I mean, like I your dad was like intimidated out of leaving, you know, yeah, for like he, this reason. 
he was like let me get my stuff back right and then they were like you can have all of this but not your driver's license and then he used to his work was delivery like he used to mm-hmm. deliver parts to different like mechanics and stuff and then he couldn't work anymore yeah um, oh, right, right and then he started yeah. working houses with my mom which for like a very old school conservative brazilian man is very emasculating mm-hmm. and he was just very depressed so then he left and like i i guess like saying all that out loud i'm like yes immigration and being undocumented really affected my relationship with my father mm-hmm. in the new book that i'm writing i'm trying to be less black and white about him because yeah like he fucked up in a lot of ways um even when he was here he wasn't a very good father and like honestly like in a lot of ways our lives became better after he left but it's still like really hurts that he left yeah i mean that that in itself is sad right like it should that's the presence that he was that he leaves and you feel better right so like i right i haven't spoken with him since like six years now and you know he's like blocked in most of everything but like last time he tried to reach out he just sent me like this christian pastor video talking about like something but like there was like no context yeah oh my god it's like saying, my dad's like, <laughs> like could you not so except yeah, my dad like, sends me memes are like it's so sad when your kids forget about you oh every phone call we like i would always be the one to call him like yeah me blocking him was more of like being petty than than actually stopping him from because he didn't like he mm. never mm. so i would have to call him and every time i called him he'd be like did you forget you have a father you I, like, I was in one of your poems and i was like i know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about <laughs> i'm calling you of course i did it right it's just, also it's like you're the parent did you ever think about that literally you're the parent <laughs> so it's just yeah, I oh this time around I'm trying to write poems that see him as more human because I think he was a villain in a lot mm. of poems in the first book. Mm-hmm. And I think like it's through it's actually like a reflective of how I feel towards him, you know? So mm-hmm. I just have to do the therapy work. And as mm. I do that work, hopefully it'll reflect in the poems because i have tried to like do it without feeling it and i'm like no this doesn't feel right <laughs> like i mean i appreciate like the the feminist analyses that i see in the book um and i think that i mean a lot of the stuff that you wrote about your dad really resonated with me so uh, i appreciate it <laughs> yeah yeah and like the the stains like it's just everywhere you know like mm-hmm. I wish that it wasn't like, I wish that having a father would be like having a cousin, you know, like, but <laughs> right. so much yeah. of my life that like the other day, my, like my stepdad is like the sweetest person ever to exist. And we've been watching the TV show loot together over the summer while I've been there. But for the finale, I was going to be here and like, we just both put it on at the same time and we were texting each other back and forth about it. And like, I just wanted to cry. <laughs> Cause like with my father, like he just always refused to let me control what we were watching on the TV. Like mm-hmm. if he was in the room, the remote was his. It was mm-hmm. just always like, even if you were in the middle of watching something, he comes into the room, you give him the remote. Mm-hmm. And like, anytime I'd be like, you know, Papaya, let's, let's watch this together. He'd be like, no, like it was just <laughs> never, and I didn't think it mattered that much until my stepdad watched this with me over the mm-hmm. phone. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh my gosh, like all I wanted was to spend time with my dad, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and yeah, it was, it's, it's just, it's upsetting how much it affects every part of your life. Yeah. I, I mean, I also feel like you know, like conservative Christianity really does 
I mean, it's there's a lot of patriarchal beliefs within conservative Christianity. I mean, even just the idea that like God is a man, mm-hmm. you know, like, and you and you touch on that. You in God is love. You write God is love, not man. He doesn't remember sweat and sleep. And I feel like you know unlearning that is a part of unlearning a lot of patriarchal ideas and value systems. Yeah, I think the thing with God being a man is like both good news and bad news. Like you want him to be, to understand your humanity, right? Mm-hmm. Like you want God to to be human mm-hmm. and to know what it's like to suffer and all of that. But then at the same time, you're like, but a man though? <laughs> like, you know, well, and like, and then there's like universality that's implied from the fact that like, like it's like we go from like a man to human, and right. like, like I don't think that a man's life represents what I go through. Right. You know, to and me, it's so like, much context, right? It's like a, yeah. okay, a man when and where mm-hmm. and what kind of man, you know, like mm-hmm. a tall man versus a short man. That's whole different lives. <laughs> you no, know? I just, I, I don't know, like there's just a lot to unlearn and there's a lot of overlap with conservative Christianity and the patriarchy for sure. Yeah. What does it mean to be more like salt crystals and diamonds? So I thought about this and this is in a couple of my poems. So I was, when comparing a diamond and a salt crystal, diamonds are known to be like really tough Mm -hmm. they can cut glass they're really great under pressure and i feel like that's kind of what's expected of me but also even of immigrants Mm -hmm. also even of women of color Mm -hmm. and of latino women i just kind of came to this point where i'm like no i'm not that tough like Mm. Put me underwater and I'm a dissolve. You know, like it's and that's valid. Glass, like you press me against some glass and I'm gonna crumble. You know, like uh, yeah, just being tired of being tough and tired of being so fucking strong mm. and being like, is it okay? Like, is it okay for me to just be salt? Like, is it okay for me to just literally? You can like, literally, you can hold it. You can hold salt in your hand and if you sweat which you know we've established that I sweat that salt's gonna melt you know like like that's how I am you know like I feel I'm a crier I have a lot of feelings I hate being called tough mm. I hate being called strong mm. I'm like no you don't you don't get to call me that like you don't you know you don't get to expect that from me mm. like you get to, to put that on me mm-hmm. and I think that there's some good things about being salt yeah like yeah sure it's like falling apart all the time but also like it brings flavor it's a seasoning of life yeah it preserves <laughs> it's in the ocean and we all love the ocean it's mm-hmm. in our tears mm-hmm. you know like there's just mm. there's just so much life in salt that even though maybe it's not as tough or beautiful as diamonds like i yeah I'm I'm salt. Hmm. I love that. Um, those are all the questions that I had. I to close out, I like to ask people, what is something that is giving you life lately? I've just let me see, it's the first week of school. Hmm. The second day of school, first day teaching. I'm gonna say a soft naps mm. as a answer. I did not know that I could nap so much. And then I came to grad school and like (laughs) napping is part of my schedule. Definitely. But also I think just like audiobooks Mm. and podcasts and watching stuff. And I'll give you recommendations. So Dungeons and Daddies is (laughs) have you heard of that? No. So it's a it's a Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's a story of like four dads Mm -hmm. who get like thrown into high fantasy world, um, and they have to go find their son. Mm. 
and it's just like really smart and like it's like collaborative storytelling you know Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed it I'm on the second season now and I'm trying to go slow and then for audiobooks I just read My Sister's a Serial Killer on the drive up from Atlanta I had it playing and it was really good if you have a sister and if your therapist has ever used the word enmeshed when talking about you and your family like this book is for you like if if you're just like yep if my sister were out there just killing men I would probably do the same thing oh I love that yeah (laughs) Great. Okay. Um, Amazing things that are giving you life. I love yeah. That. <laughs> um, I just watched yesterday the, I guess, more sister stuff. The show Bad Sisters on Apple okay. TV. I only saw the first two episodes, but that was really good. Mm. It's also about sisters killing men. <laughs> Maybe there's a there's a theme. There I love the sister. I, I like, she is, yeah, I love her and I love where we are right now in our friendship. She doesn't like it when I call what we have a friendship. She's like, I'm your sister. (laughs) We'll have a friendship. And I'm like, okay. Okay. Sistership? I don't know. Yeah. And audiobooks. I've been rereading, re-listening also to the Percy Jackson books. Okay. And those are fun. Yeah. I want to go into middle grade after I write this. I'm I'm working on a young adult novel. Oh, cool. Trying to get it out. As soon as I get it out. I'll like turn towards middle grade anything. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's been what I've been into and what's been really like making me also candles. Mm. Bath and Body Works candles. Currently the carrot cake one. Ooh. <laughs> okay, well, Alini, thank you so much for coming back onto the podcast. It's always great to talk to you. 